going to start uh, the, this is kind of a, we're trying to see how this goes. I like this idea. Uh, when I first started coming to Calvary Community Church, what stood out to me was the amount of scripture that was covered in one service. And naturally, there were a lot of things that the pastor, Dr. Uh, Dr. Lindstrom, said that I retained for a moment, but then later when I would go back and kind of chew on those things, I'd say, what does that mean? I don't really understand that. And so I would start sending questions in. And Dr. Lindstrom was unique. Uh, he did a live call-in show called Bible Line that was on WTBN, and it was five days a week. It was an hour long, and there wasn't, a, you know, 45 minutes of talk and then two callers. <laughs> I don't know how many of you guys listen to, like, political talk radio, but that's, like, almost all the talk radio today. I like listening to Mark Levin. I haven't listened to him in a while. He's a live call-in show, but I think I've heard him take, like, two calls. <laughs> That's not how Dr. Lindstrom would run his program. He'd maybe have five minutes of something in the beginning, and then he'd get to callers. And some of his uh, answers would be lengthy, uh, but he'd still give good answers. So what we're going to do, I'm going to um, go away from the slideshow here, and I'm actually going to have a Bible study program up on the screens for you. The reason why I want to do this is because I felt it would be helpful if we could highlight and underline things and you could see it in real time but I do not want this to distract you from using your own Bible. I, I know th this may sound uh, kind of insignificant, but I went back and forth as to whether I was going to use this eSword program because there's a lot of benefit for you seeing it in your own Bible and being able to mark it in your own Bible. You're not going to take this home, uh, this, this Bible program home. And so, Paul, this is also easier for you. You can just keep it on the, on the, uh, the slides there, and I'll go through it here. But I have a couple of questions. I have four in total that I'd like to address tonight if we don't have questions from you. I want to start with one of the questions that was sent because it's a very good question. So here's the first one we're going we're gonna to answer. What is Galatian error and is free grace endorsing it? There's a couple of things to talk about before we get into the, the answer there, but I want you to take your Bibles and go to Galatians uh, chapter 3. So the question is, what is Galatian error and is free grace endorsing it? I kind of reluctantly use the term free grace, but that's pretty much the biblical understanding that a person can experience salvation, meaning they, they can be in the right standing with God permanently by simply responding in faith to Jesus Christ shed blood, his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. That's how a person experiences salvation. There are two other competing views on how a person is saved. The second one is lordship salvation, which means in order for a person to be saved, they must believe on Jesus Christ and commit their lives to Jesus in an act of lordship. And they use verses out of context that use the word Lord, and they say, if, you, it, you know, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all, things like that. And there will be an expectation for you as the believer to basically prove it to the people in your life and ultimately to God. And that's called lordship salvation. It is adding works to the gospel. Another competing view is the Calvinist view, which says that salvation is attained by grace, by God's grace through the believer's faith in Jesus Christ, but the grace of God is given to the sinner outside of their own choice. 
So instead of, you know, if I were to give an altar call tonight, right, and I were to say, you, if you want to get saved, come down and walk down the aisle. We don't do altar calls here, but just for the illustration, the idea would be that I would whisper to you in front of the door when you came in, hey, I'm going to, when I say come down the aisle, you come down the aisle. And you just come down the aisle because I made you come down the aisle beforehand. It's a weird, twisted way of looking at the gospel, but you may say, well, you know, they're still giving the gospel message clearly. They are, and I would say most of people who are, who are Calvinists give the gospel clearly, but the problem comes on the back end. There's a doctrine that they teach called the perseverance of the saints, which says if you are truly saved and you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you will persevere, meaning you won't sin, and they never say how much sin you have to commit and what would be too much to say you're not really a saint, but they'll say a true believer will not ever uh, fall into sin and not get back up. And so that's called backloading the gospel. The Galatian error is a teaching that Paul was addressing, and you have to understand how significant this error was. Free grace, we've defined it. Whenever you hear me use that term, that's what I mean. Salvation is achieved by faith alone and Christ alone. If you're here tonight and you have no idea where you're going to go when you die, you can experience salvation right now. And you say, well, how so? By simply putting your trust in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died on the cross to pay for your sins, was buried and rose again three days later. When you put your trust in Him, judicially, in God's courtroom, the word is justified. You, you, you now are redeemed. The sin payment that Christ made is put to your account you have the righteousness of God, you're eternally secured. There's nothing that you could ever do from that moment of faith until the moment of your death that would nullify what God has done in the very moment that you put, his trust, uh, put your trust in his son. That's the free grace view, okay? I just like to call it the Bible way of salvation. But, you know, titles are prevalent, and, and if you're going to get on the internet and start looking stuff up, I want you to understand where these things are. The Galatian error is very simple. It's adding works to salvation and the Christian growth. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not anything charismatic or crazy. What it means is there's a seal that's placed upon you. You can't see it or feel it. You only know it's there by what the Bible says. But it's a seal of the Holy Spirit, the third part of the Trinity, is he now lives within you. He's not living in your heart or in another organ or body part, but he resides in you, and you are now born again, which is something separate than, than the Holy Spirit, but you have a second nature, a new nature, which is sinless. It is perfect. You still have your old nature, and your old nature constantly strives against your new nature, but before you got saved, you could not do anything of value for God. And some people have a hard time recognizing that, but the reason why we have a hard time with it is because we have deceived ourselves to think that man's goodness is equal to God's goodness. So if you were to go, you know, this week and sell all that you have and give all your money to the poor and, you know, basically take all that you have and give it to somebody else and now you're in their position, the world would look at you and say, that's a good thing. That's, that's something that is noble. That's a humanitarian act. But in the eyes of God, if you did those works to say to God, will you now justify me? Will you now give me your righteousness because of this work? The Bible describes that as filthy rags. It's, it's not a valid form of payment. I've used this illustration before, but it's good to use it now. It's like if I were to take everybody down to Burns Steakhouse tonight and you got whatever you wanted, 
And at the end, when the check came, I paid the currency amount, but it was in Monopoly money. Okay, it's, it's a form of currency, but what's going to be the problem between me and Burns Steakhouse? They don't accept that. They don't accept that as, as, a form of, of, uh, as an accepted form of payment. It's the same thing if we let our good works illustrate the Monopoly money. Okay, that's us going to God and saying, here's all the Monopoly money when the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Somebody has to die for that sin. It's not any good work that you could ever do. It's not something you could ever start or stop or commit or turn from. You need someone to die in your place who can pay for your sin. And that's why what Jesus did is so significant. And the reason why it's so hard for people to understand this is because within each of us, even us here tonight, we are prideful people. And we can think, we can have the audacity to think that my good works are on the same level as the the sinless blood of Jesus Christ, you'd say, how? no, no one would ever say that. People are saying that today. People are going to church tonight thinking that they're, the fact, well, I'm going to Sunday night church, that's because I'm really, really good. Well, God's not going to honor that as a sin payment. The wages of sin is death. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. So Paul's traveling, and he goes to the region of Galatia. Galatia is not a city. It's a region, about nine different cities. And he goes in and he teaches them, you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And in Galatians chapter 1, he makes this statement here in verse uh, 9. If any man preach any other gospel unto you, uh, then, uh, then that ye have received, let him be accursed. And he goes on to tell them that the, the gospel message that they have received, it is a different gospel. It's actually verse 6. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another good news, another message, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. This is interesting, these two words, another, they're the same words in the English language, but in, in the original language, the Greek here, there's something different. You can understand, maybe we're looking at car parts. Here's an illustration. Um, a headlight and a taillight. Okay, they're both lights, but they're not the same. One, you know, one is for the back of the car, the other is for the front of the car. Another, something completely different would be a taillight and an orange. Uh, th these things are not even in the same genre, in the same category. And that's what Paul is saying here. This is not the difference between the headlight gospel of Jesus Christ and the taillight gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying this is something completely different. You're talking about saved by faith alone in Christ alone and saved by works of the Mosaic law and faith. That's, that's a problem. So he goes on and he addresses his authenticity to speak on this level, but he makes a, he makes a statement in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Now, if you're a Bible student, when you see statements like this, this only would I learn from you, this is what you call a subject matter question. Everything that he's going to address until the subject matter changes by another statement like that, but everything he's going to address answers this question. What's the question? Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So he asked the Galatians, how did you receive the Spirit? Why is it important that Paul asks them how they received the Spirit? Because the Spirit is the seal that's upon each believer that comes by faith. We're going to look in Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 13. 
where I can show that to you. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye, what does that say? Heard the word of truth. And just so there's no confusion as to what the word of truth is, Paul says, the gospel of your salvation. This is important. The good news of what? Your salvation, which we know by, if you do a study, the first 13 verses, talking all about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. In whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that what? Holy Spirit of promise. Now this is capitalized because we're talking about the third part of the Trinity. This is the seal that happens when you, by faith, trust on Jesus Christ. So when we go back to Galatians chapter 3, and we see his question here, received ye the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? You can conclude, what's the answer to this question? It's by the hearing of faith. But what were they, the Galatians, now believing? I have to keep the law. Specifically, I, for, for the men, I have to be circumcised and keep the law in order to really be saved or have any spiritual growth. Look at his response in verse 3. Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? So there's two comparisons that are made now. You have faith alone and Christ alone being how you receive the Spirit, and then we also grow by that same faith. The opposite of that is growing out of our own striving, out of our own flesh. There is a reality where believers, they're saved by grace, we're going to meet them in heaven. There's a lot of people that on, on the internet that disagree with the way that we teach the Bible here, and I'll see those folks in heaven, and they'll finally know that they were wrong and I was right. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. But when we get to heaven, all that's going to matter is, did you put your trust in Jesus Christ? But here, there's a type of Christianity called legalism, where it's the striving about of doing the law to bring about Christian growth. It's the idea of, I'm coming to church so that I can grow spiritually because I'm here at church. No, the reason why you go to church to grow spiritually is that you hear the word taught. Then you start to realize, I don't have to only hear the word taught when I'm at church. I can read it at home. I can then do what it says. How does a believer grow? They love one another. That is the one command that Jesus gives to his disciples in the upper room. Love one another. That's how the world is going to know you're of me. 1 John talks all about that. Before, before you put your trust in Christ, if you tried to love other people as God says to love them, you could never do it. Why is that? Because you only have one nature at that point. You only have your flesh nature. Now you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, and now are you going to go back to that same ritualistic pattern of just keeping the law to keep the law? How are you going to grow in that flesh which is dead, which has no profitability, which has been crucified with Christ, how are you going to grow? The answer is you're not. And that's what Paul is addressing here. And that's what Galatian error is. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain? Now this doesn't mean in, the, in vain, meaning they weren't saved. But in vain, they're going to go through, I cannot imagine what it must be like to, have, to be a grown man facing circumcision. <laughs> what kind of pain would that be? 
or all of the other things of the law. Why would you have to do that if all your righteousness is already completed because you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ? Well, there were people that came in to these, this region of Galatia, and I believe this, this was a part of the devil's plan to get people, to get believers to stop their growth, and all of a sudden, they started teaching, yes, Jesus is sufficient, but you need to also do the works of the law. Specifically, men, you need to get circumcised. And now these people, are, are, they're going, oh, well, I don't want to go to hell. If they went through with the circumcision, let's say, and they started keeping the law to the best of their ability, <clears throat> would they now be assured of eternal life? No. Their salvation was already completed. You know what the danger is with that person? How, what, what kind of gospel message do you think they would share? Believe and insert works. Does that bring about salvation in that hearer? No. Because they do not believe fully on Christ. They believe also in their good works. That's the danger. That's the cunningness of the devil. He can just twist it just a little bit, and all of a sudden now we're not talking about people being born into eternal life. They're staying lost. He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he, and he's talking of himself, by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith, even as Abraham believed God and it was counted uh, to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Why is he bringing up Abraham here? Because the Judaizers were claiming Abraham, the patriarch, as the one who had the sign of circumcision. So don't you also want to have that sign in order to get to heaven? Certainly you won't be known of God if you don't have this physical sign. No, that physical sign served a purpose, which is now gone. And now there's a spiritual circumcision. What is that? The new nature, which cannot sin, which is born of God, which comes by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Galatian error is. There are some on YouTube, and you'll see it. They, they record their videos like this. They're either in their car, or sometimes you don't even see them. And, the, and, and I'm telling you, there's one guy who has 3,500 videos. He's had a channel for three years. That's a lot of content. And you know what? That's a lot of yit da 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 I've listened to several of it, because those guys came against our church and our YouTube channel, and we're teaching, Pastor Jesse teaches Galatian error because he teaches that we have to have good works after salvation in order to be rewarded by God. Now, looking at what the Scripture says, is that an accurate statement? It's not. What's Galatian error? Adding works to the gospel. Does God expect people to grow in their Christianity? He absolutely does. I want you to see this, and then I'll, um, we'll turn it over to you if you have questions, or you have a question about something else. Uh, Titus chapter 3. I'm sorry, Titus chapter 2. This font is so big. This, this is too big for me. <laughs> I didn't realize that Bob had the font this big. So hang on just a second. Okay. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us, now a subject study here, us, is referring to those who have believed that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. 
the people that were coming against our ministry and saying they teach Galatian error were saying that any kind of instruction from, another believe, from one believer to another believer that encouraged them to do good works, to live a disciplined life, is not resting on the grace of God. That's resting on the works of man. But Jesus said in John chapter 15, you need to bear fruit, else you're going you're, you're, you're to be cut off and men will gather you and cast you into the fire. That's not an illustration of hell. That's the illustration of physically, you'll be gone. You'll have no profit, uh, profitability here. You won't be able to bear any fruit because you're not obedient. You're not connected to him. You're not walking in that spirit nature. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, what does that say? Zealous of good works. Yes, I'm not saying you should worry and fear about doing good works, but you should not be idle with your Christian life. And I don't think that's a problem statement at all. Can you imagine if we all just decided right now with our lives to just sit and wait for things to happen to us? I mean, if you went to the extreme of saying, I will not do anything until God tells me, you would be here all night. And you say, well, you, you mean God wouldn't tell us? He's already told us. It's in the Bible. So the expectation is for you to rightly divide the word of truth, and by rightly dividing, you can see what does the Bible say, and then go and do it. Well, I have to wait for God to tell me to go win souls. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 has already given you that instruction. We've been entrusted with the gospel message. Oh, well, um, I guess that's just not for me. That's just not my gift. Well, there is no gift of sharing the gospel. We're supposed to get the gospel out. There's no gift about that. Well, I guess that Christ is my reward and that's sufficient. Yeah, Christ is not only our reward, but he's our foundation and we're expected to build upon that foundation. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And what you start to see is the argument falls apart. But I want you to understand, real Galatian error is adding works, specifically the Jewish law, to faith in Christ in order to be justified before God. And no, free grace does not endorse it because free grace simply says, all who want to be, get saved, you put your trust in Jesus Christ. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. So you're going around zealous of good works. You're living for the Lord. You're walking in your spirit uh, nature. You're you know, abstaining from sin. Don't let other people come against you and despise you for that. You know who you're doing this for. And this is where I think a lot of Christians can have a large step of maturity. Who are you doing this for? Why are you here at church tonight? Why do you believe what you believe? If it's to please men and to be welcomed into some type of group or faith or denomination, you're going to have your reward and it won't satisfy. You should do this solely for one purpose, out of thankfulness for what Jesus has done for you. That's the greatest motivation, and that's love then you take that and you go and reach other people. So that's the, that's the first question I wanted to make sure that we, we got an answer to. So we'll turn it over to you now. If you have a Bible question, you can raise your hand. We'll get a microphone to you. I have some other ones loaded up here just in case. Don't be shy. Anybody have a question? Yes, Dave. We'll get to you. I'm, I want to make sure we uh, get a microphone because there's people that are listening online. 
I, I didn't really have any uh, specific questions coming today. I, I think I might next month, but no, just tacking on real quick to this. I don't want to take too much time. Mm -hmm. I, I fell into seeing what, what some of these guys have said on the web. It, mm -hmm. was, it was stunning. I had not heard about hypergrace, the yeah. hypergracers until you brought that to everybody's attention months ago. I mean, it was just, it was, anyway. What Dave is talking about is those people who say there is no work to be done. Right. We just kind of sit back and let things happen to us. That has been given the title of hypergrace. Right. And what got my attention was when I started seeing them uh, openly criticizing Yankee Arnold, Dr. Kakuza. In fact, one of these guys, and I won't name him, at one point had praised Pastor Arnold for his ceaseless commitment to the gospel. Yeah. And then later criticized him. And all I can think of is some, you know, he went off the rails. Yeah. But everything you're saying today, this is what I really want to comment on. I haven't seen one of them, and I got one in mind, who's was even attempted to look at those verses or try to refute any of that that you brought up that basically says, that, that, that clearly says that, that, that uh, uh, we're here as believers to continue in good works. Mm -hmm. They just go right past it. I'm not even sure what they do with 1 John 1, 9 in terms of fellowship restoration, mm -hmm. but they just, they, they just seem to kind of fly past it and just make flippant comments back at... Oh, and they destroy ministries. And this is why I'm glad, uh, this was Jose's question. Jose had sent this in. I'm glad that he asked it because what's really sad about all this is you've got, this, this is what I call cancer in the church. This is two saved parties coming against one another. And if you look at the verses on the screen, just take a look at this. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye, the body of Christ, other believers, bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. When you get a, when you get a cancer diagnosis, that is life-changing. And if you study what cancer is, it's the body attacking itself. My mother died of leukemia, and it was in the final stages. And her body over-defended to the point where it, it killed her. That's what I see happening in the body of Christ with stuff like this. Where it's like, and I'm talking endless, endless rantings and ravings about nothing. And yet, if they really thought that we were teaching an error, the right response would be to challenge it with Scripture privately, one-on-one, -on -one, and then, if there continues to be an issue, you go forward with it. But sadly, a lot of these people are rooted in pride. They want to be the sole source of authority in people's lives. That's, that's just it. They, they, you would think they would try to refute it by trying to actually edify if there was mm -hmm. something wrong in terms of Scripture being presented by others. But no, it, it launches out into a personal attack with no basis behind it. And it, 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 a lot of it just slanderous. It's like, you know, I, I don't even want to see that. Anymore. I want to yeah. pull into it. But I, I just wanted to comment. Yeah, thanks, Dave. We appreciate that. Any other questions? Jose? I have one of your, I had two of yours tonight, Jose. So <laughs> my question is, what kind of body did Adam and Eve have? Because... I don't think they had a body like the resurrected bodies that we're going to have because obviously they sinned. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if it's correct to say they lost their salvation, but like what, what would you say their body was? That's a good question. I don't think their bodies were any different than our bodies. Mm -hmm. The Bible says that we're, let us make man in our image. And so I think they looked like us. Did they have belly buttons? I don't know. 
That, that, that seems to be the big question. But I think what you're more asking is what was their nature like? And I would say they were not created in sinless, uh, excuse me, with sinless perfection. And, and here's why I say that. Because they sinned, Jesus was not created um, in innocence. There's a reason why there, the virgin birth had to happen the way that it did. I just taught this in the life of Christ. If Jesus was the product of Mary and Joseph coming together, sleeping with one another to produce the um, sperm fertilizing the egg, just by that interaction right there, not the act itself, but the fertilizing, that passes on sin. And Romans chapter 5 tells us that. So Jesus would have been born under sin, according to Romans 5. Adam and Eve are different. They're created, but they're given the instruction not to sin. If they were sinless, there would have been no need for that instruction. Jesus was never told by the Father, you know, go and sin no more. Jesus was said, he was declared, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So the difference between Adam and Eve in their creation and Jesus is that one is born into what I would doctrinally say is innocence, and then the other is born sinless. The word made flesh and dwelt among us. So when Adam and Eve sinned, they were, spiritually, they were connected to God, and then they died. And that was one of the things that the devil lied about because there were two deaths that could have been experienced, the physical death and then the spiritual death. And when Adam and Eve committed that sin of eating of that tree, they, were, they spiritually died right in that moment. They were disconnected. They, they lived for hundreds of years after that, but they died spiritually that day. I hope that answers your question. One of the big things, and you know, it's, it's worth looking at it. I forget I have the, the thing up here. Look in uh, Romans chapter 5. Wherefore, this is Romans 5.12, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned over the similitude of Adam's transgression, who was the figure of him, of him that was to come. Excuse me. This is to say that when a person is, like when you and I are born, I think this doctrine is called the original sin doctrine, but there is not a moment in our lives where we as individuals went from innocence to, to sinful. I mean, my daughter, as lovely as she is, she was born under sin. There's, there's not a moment where Kyla and I as her parents go, this is where she's become a sinner. She now goes from this glorified state to this fallen state. She's born under sin. Now, I believe there's a provision of the blood of Christ for those who cannot understand the difference between right and wrong. That's a whole different discussion. We actually did a video on that. But my point is, the significance of that is we have to look at Jesus as being, you know, the virgin birth is very important. When we deny that, we are basically saying Jesus was born just like you and me. That would be no different if the best of us went to go die on the cross. It'd be no different. That's why when Andy Stanley a few months ago came out and denied the virgin birth, I don't know if he ever believed it at one point or whatever it is, but that's a major, a major problem. He said it's insignificant to, this, to the plan of salvation. It is a part of the plan of salvation. I'm not saying that you know, a person uh, has to understand that. They have to understand who Jesus is. But the statement is, he, is Jesus the Son of God? I mean, that entails the virgin birth. And to deny that, you got major problems. 
I mean, why not believe in Muhammad at that point? I'm serious. Why not believe in Mother Teresa or any good person? Uh, we're, all, we're all born under sin, and that sin must be paid. And there's a significant statement here in verse 13, for unto the law uh, was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. This is meaning, of course, law, when it came in, condemned even further. But that doesn't mean that everybody before the law was not condemned of sin. It says it right here. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. What brought on sin? Disobedience. That's, that's what brought on sin, and we're all born into it. Good question. Any others? If, if not, I got another question here. Adam, or uh, not Adam. <laughs> Andrew, Adam is with us here tonight. <laughs> oh, James, James, James beat you to it, Louis. Go ahead, um, Andrew. I have a question about what does the Bible actually say about deliverance compared to what is being said be- between all the deliverance ministers out there? Yeah, well, that, there's a lot to explain, so I'll, I'll give a short answer to that, but basically what Andrew and I were talking about this a few days ago uh, there's a ministry out there called the Deliverance Ministries where it's basically, I would say it's a branch of the charismatic movement where if you have financial issues or you have health issues, uh, those aren't you know problems that are stemming from the world. There's actually demon possession in your life, and so you have to be delivered from that. It's very manipulative. Uh, so they'll do hour-long live streams where they will, and I'm telling you folks, we could do this on Bible Line. Now people would nail us for it because they know the truth. But we could create a YouTube channel and open up what's called a super chat where people can pay $10, $20, $50, and then you read their question and you deliver them over the internet. Can I introduce you to something called public access TV? I mean, this has been around for a long time. But the real deliverance for the believer is we are delivered from the payment of sin. You can experience daily deliverance by walking in the spirit and not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. But if you have financial problems, if you have health problems, it's not because there's demons in your life. It's because we live in a fallen and wicked world. In those moments, we are supposed to look to the fact that this, what we're experiencing now, is not our final home. We have a new nature, therefore there's a a resurrection waiting for us, whether it's at the rapture or at the day of our death, when when the Lord comes back, we will be with the Lord. And I think a lot of people, if we're honest... And this is where I start talking to people that are swindled into this. A lot of people's financial issues or their health issues are a direct result of choices they've made. You're going to have financial problems if you go and gamble away your paycheck. You're going to have health problems if you abuse your body with alcohol. When Kyla and I were looking at the adoption process, and we, we were going through, it's, it's a very difficult thing. These, these kids come from Families that are they're having a hard time. A lot of them are enslaved to drugs and alcohol. The number one substance that puts children behind the eight ball as far as learning disabilities, physical disabilities, behavioral problems, is alcohol. It's the number one thing. And you can go buy it tonight. You can go buy that. You can go buy beer, alcohol, wine. You can buy it and consume it tonight. Everybody's worried about fentanyl and meth and all that. A number one most destructive thing you can do to a child in the womb is to drink alcohol. That's speaking volumes. Because <laughs> the Bible speaks real clearly on, on, on a lot of those issues. The, so, you know, can, can demonic beings use that to enslave you? Yes, but I think you give yourself over to it first. You make that choice. I don't watch any scary movies. I don't do it because I don't want to see 
what people think demonic possession is. I'm not interested, because I know that stuff is real. I can take you to a chapter in the Bible, Mark chapter, Mark chapter 5, the Gadarean man who was unable to be restrained. He ran around naked in the tombs. He had fetters that he would break and he would scream and tear himself. I don't want to see that for entertainment. That's not fun for me. But it's a major genre today. You can go to Toys, well, you can't go to Toys R Us anymore. I'm showing my age. You used to be able to go to Toys R Us. You could go to Walmart tonight and you can buy a Ouija board, which is selling the idea of communicating with people in the next world. Why would, why would that be an interest to children? Because they're fertile minds. This is something the devil can get into and, and uh, mix up. So hopefully that answers your question. A lot of the deliverance ministry today, you want to you find out what they really believe? Ask them how you can know for sure you're going to heaven. And then ask them a follow-up question. Is there anything you could do between now, the moment of belief, and the moment of your death that would change your destination? And you'll see what they believe. A lot of, they don't answer that question because that's, that's not the business they're in, and it is a business. They are selling spiritual things. Think of Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter, I think it's chapter 9. It could be another one. Any other questions? Yes. One, I think. We just met one this morning. We'll take this one, and then I want to get to one more that we had So before. I know yes, you sir. talk about uh, Calvinist, Calvinism mm-hmm. a lot. How do you debunk Calvinism to a sovereign gracer that's a free gracer but believes in, in predestination? Well, in that kind of situation, how do you debunk Calvinism to a sovereign gracer? I'm fairly certain that I'd be talking to a brother in Christ. Yeah. And this is where I'm real sensitive to how I would address somebody who's in the faith. I don't want to commit the error of Galatians 5. I don't want to bite and devour that I'm consuming another person of the body of Christ. What I would do is I would walk them through the biblical understanding that for everything that God has said, and this is why I subscribe to dispensationalism, because there are periods of time where God sets the standard for blessing and the standard for cursing, and he holds man accountable to it. One of the, one of the basest things that I, could, that I could come down to is in the garden. I would ask that person who believes in the sovereignty of God, did God decree before the foundation of the world and therefore cause Adam to sin? That would be my first question. Because God clearly gave the instruction, which implies a response. Excuse me. When he went into the garden and he asked Adam, where are you? The response implies that he had a responsibility. You're out here like you're supposed to be. Where are you? Why are you not out here? And it, hadn't, it, it wasn't like it had not dawned on God that that had happened. He knew what happened. He had knowledge of all things. I would go to uh, something like, um, ah, the guy's name is failing me, but David's son, Absalom. I would also look at that and say, did God decree that Absalom's rebellion against David king, uh, David's kingdom was of his own volition, meaning God willed it and therefore he caused Absalom to do that? I would also look at the statements where Jesus said, uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you together, but ye would not. I would be asking that, that sovereign, the, the person who subscribes to, God is meticulously in control of everything. I would ask him, did God make them not believe and then therefore hold them accountable to what he took away from them? Because then the answer would just be, Jesus walks in and he's going to save all that he already picked. That would be my response, but there's a lot more into that. And I want you to stay afterwards because I have notes from a Bible study we just did on Saturday that goes through, I'd probably say about 50 verses that talk about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility 
to choose. There's another one. Choose you this day who you'll serve. Why would Joshua say that if there is no choice to be made? It's literally the definition of paranoia. It's an unstable mind. The Calvinist God is a weak God. He's the God that has to play both sides of the chessboard because that's the only way he can win. Instead, God has done all that he's done and he holds man to the choice of, you choose. You can accept my son or reject him. And God knows what every man will do. That doesn't mean he brought that about. Good question, Juan. Any others? All right, I want to answer this one here. As believers, what is our relationship between faith and the law? I know Galatians 3 says that it's foolish to think that we complete our walk by the law when we began it by faith and that we must walk in the Spirit and abide in Christ. However, when Jesus says to abide in Him, He says to love one another. Isn't this works of the law since it says that the law is fulfilled in loving your neighbors as yourself? No, and here's why. Study the difference between the person who is under the law and the person who's under grace. What's the difference between those two individuals? One only has a sinful nature, the other has a sinful nature and a new nature. That new nature enables you to fulfill requirements that are in the law. And I'm not talking about like dietary requirements. You can love your neighbor. You can love one another. You couldn't do that before because you didn't have that new nature. So the relationship between faith and the law, we have what James describes as um, the law of Christ, which is to love one another as it's described in John chapter 15. That does not mean that we as Christians now go back to the, to the, uh, to the ritual law and say, if I do all these things, then I'll be walking in the Spirit. You walk in the Spirit by loving one another. And I know that sounds so basic, and I give answers to people like that, and they say, well, I need more specifics. The specifics will take care of themselves. If you go from a position of meekness and humility, God will use you. I guarantee it. He promises that attitude will not be barren of fruit. I want to sh- show that to you. In 2 Peter chapter 1, He says this, and besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, knowledge temperance, temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity, which is the archaic word for love. For if these things be in you, if you're a believer and you mature to the point of love, notice that the first thing that's said is knowledge. Yeah, good, you know things. Okay, move on. <laughs> I love that because there's a lot of people that sit on the internet and they're like, you know, okay, stop this and start this. You know, like, start, stop talking and start doing. If these things be in you and abound, I believe that's referring to the progression, getting to love, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful. This is a spiritual promise. You walk in your new nature and add to your faith. You will not be barren nor unfruitful. Sign me up. I want that, you know? And that's not striving. That's not saying, boy, I got to get to church. It's, it's week 47. I got to get 52 because I'm walking in the Spirit. That ain't, that's not it. You know how many people are born-again Christians and they would be thrown in jail if they went to church? Let's talk about that. How many believers in foreign countries that have to go into underground hiding? They have to hide a Bible 
And here we are thinking, well, I came to Wednesday night church, so I'm somebody. Folks, come on. But he that lacketh these things is blind, cannot see afar off, and you'll even forget that you got saved. Hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. But let me show you this. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 19, here's a great promise. You may forget, but God will not forget. Is it 2 Timothy 2? Oh, that's Thessalonians, thanks. I would have never figured that out. <laughs> there we go, T-I. You may forget, but God does not forget. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. But what a shame, what a shame it would be for a believer to forget who they are. I have not had this in my family, but I have a dear friend of mine whose parents lost their minds, and it was, it was hard. And it got to the point where they were, his mother was walking around unsafe outside at night in the middle of the street. You know that from uh, Alzheimer's, dementia, it's a horrible thing. It's a terrible thing to watch somebody lose their mind. But there's great comfort in knowing God will not forgive, forget them. But I, there's nobody I know of that willfully chooses to have dementia or Alzheimer's. But that's the equivalent of a believer walking in sin. You're willingly choosing to, to hurt yourself. People hurt themselves today, and that's amazing. We're, there's a pattern as a pastor. If I hear someone's in self-harm, I have to act. There are things that I have to do, steps that must be taken. But I see believers hurt themselves every day with the choice to sin. But just, just as a, a reminder here, you abound in those things, <clears throat> you will not be barren nor unfruitful. And that doesn't mean you strive about doing things for the sake of doing them. And, and you know, deep down inside, you know why you're doing things. You can deceive me. Eventually you'll deceive yourself, and that's what Second Peter was talking about. You'll forget that you were purged from your old sins. But, you know, start asking yourself the question, like, why am I going to church? You know, why don't I share the gospel? And be honest. It's very refreshing to be honest after a long time of deception. Say things like, I don't, you know, if, it, if it's true, if, if, if you're not leading people to Christ, you're not sharing the gospel because you don't know the gospel, admit that and then learn the gospel. <laughs> we are here. We want to help you. You know, the church is open more than just Sundays and Wednesdays. You know, send us an email. Let us know. And if I can't help you, we got great men and women in this church that will come alongside you and help you grow in the faith. But you got to do it because you love the Lord. I mean, if you're doing it to, to, to receive a volunteer award or something like that, you're not going to last. And everything you do will be out of deception of yourself. There were two other questions that I had planned to answer, but we'll get to those next time. Please make sure as you're going about between now and the last Sunday night in February, send me your questions and be ready. Even if you want to you know, give them to me beforehand, that's good. The reason why I want questions beforehand is so we're not sitting here and it's 613 and nobody has a question. We're just like, all right, let's all go to Awana, you know? <laughs> But if you're here today, I want you to know for sure that you can have eternal life, that you'll be in heaven. So let me illustrate to you how you can know that. 
This hand represents you and me, my wallet, <laughs> not my wallet, this block of sin right here represents sin. I put this on top of my hand because the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God loves us very much, but he hates sin. Our sin separates us from him. To get to heaven, we have to be perfect. A lot of people say, well, I'll just sin less. No, you have to be sinless. No sin. It's not just a little bit, teeny bit. Well, you can almost barely see it, but there's one there. You have to have no sin. And a lot of people think they can have a, they call it a come to Jesus moment where they decide from this point forward, I'll never do anything wrong. That's a noble thing, but you, first of all, you can't do that. And second of all, all the sin that you committed in your life up to that point must be paid. This separates us from God. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation forever from God in a literal fire-burning hell. And there's a lot of people that are doing their very best to get rid of something that will never be accepted. Going to church, reading your Bible, being a good person, giving money, none of those things will save you. Somebody has to die to pay for this sin. And God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die in your place. And we can see that if this hand represents Jesus Christ, just for the sake of the illustration, he's the only begotten son of God. John describes it as the lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. Don't forget, that's you. That's me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, there's no limitation, zero, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, mean you won't go to hell, but have everlasting life. How is a person saved? You simply put your trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who shed his blood, was buried and rose again three days later. The moment that you put your faith in him, it's all done, it's finished, done. That payment that Jesus made has been applied to your account. The Bible word is imputed. It's been put to your account, and it'll never change. That's good news. I wish more churches taught like that. It's not about giving your life to the Lord, because that's a good work, and it's not going to be able to save you. It's not about turning from sin. You can't do that. That would be the equivalent of my dog acting like another animal. It's a, they can try really hard, but at the end of the day, I'm going to go, that dog is confused. Hey, we're sinners by nature. We're going to sin. So what's the solution? You put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. The Bible uses the phrase, born again. You're born first time because we're all born here of water physically. Born of the Spirit, that comes by your faith in Jesus Christ. So I implore you tonight, right where you are, change your mind and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please. Heads are bowed, knives are closed. Nobody's looking around. If you're here tonight, you say, Pastor, I walked in here and I was not sure where I was going to go when I died. thought I was a pretty good person. But now I see that my good deeds, they'll never be able to pay for my sin. I recognize now that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died in my place, and I put my trust in him. Would you pray for me? I certainly would. I ask for heads bowed and eyes closed just for your privacy. But I do want to pray for you if you put your trust in Jesus Christ for the first time in your life this evening. Would you just raise your hand and let me know? There's nothing magical or salvific in raising your hand. It just lets me know that you put your trust in Jesus tonight and you would like prayer. I'd, I'd like to pray for you. Anyone at all before we close? Heads are bowed, knives are still closed. Good questions. I encourage you to continue asking questions and seeking the Bible for answers.
Don't let a man just swindle you into an explanation. Look for chapter and verse. See the context and ask the Lord for guidance. He will guide you. Father, I thank you for this time tonight. I pray for the Awana program in the back that's wrapping up here shortly. I'm thankful for all the ministries that we have here at Calvary and for each one that's here this evening. Lord, we, we often ask for you to bless us, but we are blessed already because we have Jesus. We pray for his soon return. In his name we ask these things. Amen.